This is the F Mind Podcast, the podcast which looks at the behavioural, psychological, emotional and mental aspects of trading and investing. My name is Stephen Goldstein and my co-host is Mark Randall. Today we are delighted to have, as our guest on the podcast, Anthony Crudelli. Anthony is a veteran futures trader and host of one of the most popular financial market podcasts, The Futures Radio Show. Behind every trader, there is a story to tell, and Anthony has a fascinating story which will be of huge interest and inspiration to every trader. That's it. Well, the one thing I should say is that, and I know we'll we'll probably talk a little bit about it today as well, is I had a heart attack at my trading screens at 36. Like I said, I mean, just jarred me. I had no idea that could even was possible to happen to me. I I didn't know what to do with it when I actually started making money because I struggled for so long. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree a lot of what you both of you guys said, I, and you just really have to have a process for it. I mean, there, I don't think that there is an exact formula for that or for anything for that matter. And the one thing that you that you said, Stephen, it, dealing with your anxiety or psychology throughout that trade—that's why scaling works for me. I need to learn how to just basically relax and meditation. What it allowed me to do just through breathing. I actually started feeling better. I felt mentally stronger. I just felt so much more in control of everything. Before we commence with this week's podcast, we would like to tell you about two very special podcasts that we have coming up. Next week, we will be having an interview with notorious rogue trader Nick Leeson, which is time to coincide with the 25th anniversary of the collapse of the British bank Bearings. Bearings was brought down by Nick's futures trading activities, which accumulated losses of over $1.3 billion. The following week, we have another fascinating interview, which is time to coincide with the release of a major new film. Our guest will be David Tate. David was formerly head of propriety trading at Goldman Sachs, UBS and Credit Suisse, and is one of only a handful of people to have climbed Mount Everest on five separate occasions, as well as the world's second highest peak, the even more challenging K2. However, the real story behind David's life is driven by events when he was abused as a child, which left scars so deep that only the intervention of the police on one occasion stopped him from taking his own life. The film of his life, Sulphur and White, has a royal gala premiere next week and goes on release in early March. David has been a tireless campaigner for the National Society for the Prevention of the Cruelty of Children, the NSPCC, and he has raised over £1.5 million for this excellent cause. This is a great and also very moving interview and is not to be missed. Before we talk to Anthony Crudelli, just a quick thank you to our sponsors, the Society of Technical Analysts. The STA is one of the world's leading providers of formal technical analysis education and qualifications. You can find out more about their education and diploma programs at sta-uk.org. Thank you also to all of you who have rated us on iTunes and left reviews. Reviews and ratings raise our profile on iTunes and allow more people to find out about the show. So thank you. Now, on with the podcast. Well, thank you guys, Stephen and Mark, for having me here today. Yeah, I mean, a little bit about myself. I mean, just I'll keep it short. Really, just been in the futures industry most of my life now. It's just crazy to even think. I mean, I've been in it since I was 18 years old. I actually just posted a picture the other day on Twitter and some of my other social media channels about me when I had first began as a clerk. Uh, I was 18 or 19 years old, roughly. And I was uh, a clerk uh, for Lynn Waldock. That's where I began my journey. Kind of a 
unique story of how I got into the business, and I'll share it quickly with you, is I was right out of high school. I actually got into a car accident, and I didn't really have a plan as what I was going to do. You know, I was, didn't know if I was going to go to college. I knew that I wanted to either get some education. <laughs> I didn't know what that was, to be honest with you. I was maybe going to get into the travel industry or business and got into a car accident and really just derailed any plans I had to go to school or anything like that. And it was actually the summer out of high school and broke my leg. And I was like, you know what? I am going to have to get a job in the meantime. So I took a job as a runner on the trading floor to strengthen my leg back up. So I went down to the exchange. I knew nothing about it. That's <laughs> that's how I got uh, on the floor of, of the mercantile exchange. And you know, really the rest was kind of you know history, right? And I became one of the youngest members at uh, 21 years old. Uh, I became a member in the S&P pit. And I started trading the E-mini S&P soon after it was launched. Uh, and it was really because I was not a very good pit trader. I was just burning through my first $25,000 account. And I had to actually borrow money. I've, I've talked about this a lot. I've actually, I went through three $25,000 accounts. And the first $25,000 account I went through in the pit. And it was really because nobody would trade with me. <laughs> and that's really, I, I say that, um, but people were trading with me. Obviously, I was losing money. So uh, I remember the Globex guys, that's what we call them, were around the pit. And I ended up you know, going to the screen. They said to me, you know what, Anthony, we've got this E-mini S&P product. We'd love for you to try it. The problem was, was that there was only two screens on the entire trading floor with the ability to trade the E-mini S&P, and we had to all share them. So if you got there first and you stayed on it, you couldn't get logged in. So I was like, this is kind of an odd way to go about starting to trade. But I went and I traded in the corner of the Merck, right behind the S&P options pit on a little probably 13-inch screen. And that's where I started trading the E-mini S&P. And you know, a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. Eventually found my way, uh, did pretty good, and you know, bring us kind of to current day. And I started my podcast with Futures Radio Show about, I guess it's been six years already, uh, you know, and I do some some video shows on YouTube, looking to do more of those in the future, and uh, you know, and <laughs> to make a long story short, that's it. Well, the one thing I should say is that, and I know we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit about it today as well, is I had a heart attack at my trading screens at 36, so that kind of uh, <laughs> changed things a little bit for me, and you know, it's kind of what. You know, kind of led me to the podcast and just other things in my life. It actually led me to a lot of really, really good things in my life. But uh, yeah, it happened. And and like I said, that's a, to make a long story short, <laughs> that, that that's my story. Wow, thanks, thanks. And, um, you know, it reminded me of that, that last bit um, when you talked about the heart attack. That was a great story. But I heard your podcast earlier this year, with, um, what was last year? Denise, who, who's going to be a guest in a couple of weeks' time. And uh, I found that really moving when you were talking about that. Um, it, it, I mean, that, that, that must have just been a, a bolt out of the blue. I, I don't even know how to even describe the emotion I felt from that day. I mean, initially, I didn't believe it. Uh, you know, and, and people can go and, and tune into that one. I'm actually going to repost that. It's actually been six years this month is when I had my heart attack. It was uh, February 28th, uh, 2014. And 
like I said, I mean, just jarred me. I had no idea that could even was possible to happen to me. I've always eaten well, you know, with all the partying and that everybody talks about it on the exchange floor. I participated a little bit, but I was never really a heavy partier. I always watched what I ate. I always exercised well. But in that in that interview with Denise, I talked a lot about how I internalize a lot of stress and 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 for me, I just always, I took a lot of people's pain, you know, and I was somebody who was never really comfortable with success. Uh, you know, I, I did everything I could to help people around me. And, and when other people were hurting, um, whether it was for money or whatever, I, I, I took a lot of that. And um, over time with, and then I started to struggle a little bit in trading, uh, you know, and just was a lot of pressure on me. And I internalized a lot of it. I didn't, I didn't really do enough of what I call work hard and play easy. You know, I figured just by lifting weights and eating well, that was going to be good for me. And it wasn't because I was just so restricted in my body and I restricted all of that in. And I just didn't have like this venting where I meditated or did things to release that stress. And like I said, it was, you know, very emotional for me, still is. <laughs> uh, and, but I, I, I take nothing but positives from it, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I can hear that in your voice when you're, when you're talking about it, and uh, you know, it, it, this leads me into so many of the great podcasts we've got. I, I think Mark, Mark had a thought or uh, a question he wanted to ask you. Well, I think uh, you know it's so familiar. I mean, have, having come from, come from the floor, you know, you kind of there's a lot you take for granted when you're on the floor of an exchange with so much going on. And I certainly take your point about sort of feeling slightly excluded, um, you know, from the, the banter. And it's kind of like a clicky club that you have to sort of get into. Uh, and, of course, that, would, that, that sort of exclusion would also weigh on you in those early days. Um, so, yeah, finding a niche. I guess your niche was this corner where you were the sort of the youngster that was picking up this uh, Globex method where maybe um, – a lot of your older peers were still in the pit trying to fight against the flow. Um, but yeah, the, the on the life floor, I think certainly the second phase of the life floor, there were crash teams. Um, and there were familiar stories about people that were having difficulty. And some of those people weren't the traditional people that you'd expect. And I think it's because actually you can't tell if somebody's internalizing pressure. Um you know, and it's the quiet ones that often have more issue than anything else. Yeah. I, you know, for me, I was somebody who I did my own thing and it was the beginning of my career was very challenging. You know, I didn't, I had a lot of mentors and I had a lot of people around me that were very good for me in my life. But when you go through the struggles of trading. And like I said, I was not comfortable with success. So when I actually started making money, I think that's the one aspect when I look back is I didn't know what to do with it when I actually started making money because I struggled for so long that I figured once I would make money that it would just kind of cure the pain that I was going through, but it, it really didn't. <laughs> and you know, you're able to do more things. and But I, I never really built good healthy habits along the way to get rid of that stress. And so when I started, like I said, the mentors that I had, they were really great for me. But I And we talked about a lot of things, but that pain that I was going through throughout my journey, 
I internalized so much. And then I figured by spending money when I made money, giving people uh, money if they needed it, or just, you know, backing traders and just doing all sorts of different things. I felt that would just, I I did a lot of it maybe because I, you know, I wanted to help these people, but I, I felt guilty in some ways for making the kind of money that I did, to be quite honest with you. And, um, you know, giving money away, I was hoping in some ways would actually, I don't know, why don't say maybe make me feel better because the, the pain was still there. It's just such a hard business, you know? And, and like I said, I internalized everything and just didn't have that, those outlets and meditation right now for me has just been, I mean, I meditated before I, I came on with you guys today, you know, just a couple of minutes, but just gather my thoughts. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's helped me tremendously. Yeah, it's a massive, uh, it's a massive tool, you know, and people might laugh about it and joke about it, but, you know, they, these soft skills and, you know, and certainly the military sort of appreciate these things that would qualify as kind of maybe soft uh, uh, and uh, emotional. Um, they're the things to sort out, really, and they actually become strengths because actually at your core, you're all about these kind of soft skills being managed. And if, if you don't manage them, then they can become very quickly out of control and create a problem. So, yeah, I mean, I'm so, so glad you're pushing out that story of, uh, you know, little and often in terms of the meditation, don't get carried away with it, but put it into your, um, uh, you know, it, fit it into your day at moments when you need that clarity and control. Uh, and, of course, you would have benefited enormously from doing it before this chat because it just turns down all the baggage of any emotion going on so you can come into this cat chats really engaged so we appreciate that um but I, I know exactly why why that is um so valuable for you no absolutely i mean i just go back to you you think that in trading you go through these struggles and then you figure that once you start to make money that's going to cure your problems well, I had a whole new set of problems after that, <laughs> you know. I mean, as you matured, did, did you find yourself sort of being siloed in being in this Globex world or did you fit in some sort of uh, bridge still with the, the guys on the floor? You know, at the beginning, I got a lot of grief for it. A lot of people were like, what are you doing over there? And a lot of the guys that I was friends with were making millions of dollars, you, you know, in the pit. And, and I'm sitting over there grinding, barely trying to be able to pay for my seat lease. And I'm working at night. I'm working in the morning, completely burned out, spending all nights, uh, all my nights on, on my charts. And they're all in there in the mornings and on the closes. And the rest of the time, they're able to do whatever it is that they want. And I'm going through this struggle. So I told all, all of them that, look it, this is where it's going to be. I don't believe, I didn't believe that the pit was my future. And it was, the, it would, I, I would go back and say that that was the greatest decision I make to go through it then because they all went through it later. And no matter how much money a lot of those guys that I was friends with made, they couldn't make the transition because it took me years to be able to figure it out. And I was trading the E-mini when I, I don't even think there was maybe 10, 15, 20,000 initially when I first started trading them total contracts. So uh, I was fortunate at that time to see the growth and be able to adapt as it started to get busier and busier. But they they all eventually started coming over to to me 
And I remember one of my one of my closest friends, after I had a really good year trading, he goes, I don't understand how is that possible? He couldn't believe that I actually had made more than him being in the pit. And that's when I think a lot of guys started to keep, take notice as to what I was doing and electronic trading started to get more and more popular. So initially, everybody that's making money doing something is not super excited about another product that could potentially take them out. They didn't believe it was going to happen overnight. Some of them didn't believe it was ever going to happen. But because I was so unsuccessful in the pit and the pit was so busy that I just I just felt because that happened to me and then I was actually on the computer, I was able to embrace the computer because I'm like, I already tried the pit. I went in there with 25 grand and six months later, I'm broke. I'm borrowing money now. I can't control risk. I need to be here. We are just pausing the podcast to tell you about the Society of Technical Analysts, who this podcast is produced in association with. The STA is the world's oldest body for the advancement of technical analysis education. Their education and diplomas are designed and delivered by some of the leading figures in the field of technical analysis and at some of the world's leading academic institutions, including the London School of Economics, King's College and Queen Mary University. They also run an outstanding home study diploma, where you can boost your knowledge and understanding of the field of technical analysis to help improve your own trading, to help with the design of your own trading systems, or to improve your chances of landing a research or trading role within the industry. To find out more about their excellent education programs and other services, go to sta-uk.org or Google Society of Technical Analysts. Now back to the podcast. So you, I mean, it's interesting that you say this because um, there's two things going through my mind here. Um, one is that the story you're talking about is a very similar story that we had on the UK. That very few people made the transition from floor to electronic trading. Um, that, that very few people made it successfully. It, it's a completely different environment. Um, we had on our show one of the few traders who did make that successfully, and that was Adam Nash, who was one of our early guests. And he, he benefited because he actually went to the floor from a, from a bank trading room environment. So he already was familiar with trading, um, sitting behind a screen, looking at, you know, looking at it differently. Um, and, and this idea of transition is... Is is a huge thing for me because you know I, I meet a lot of guys who if I do I do some work with a lot of guys who are who have moved from the sales side to the buy side so they've been in investment banks and then they move to hedge fund roles and they fail many of them fail to make that transition because it is they fail to appreciate how different the environment is how different the risk culture is and how different it is making markets. Or being a prop trader in a in a market making firm to actually being the guy on the buy side. So so there's that transition side. Another thing I was thinking upon, which I, I kind of wanted to ask maybe you and maybe Mark could do the same thing for our audience. Um, a, a lot of our audience are younger guys, more than post global financial crisis traders, who will have no understanding of quite what we mean by the pit. They would have seen pictures of it, images of it, but they won't really understand what pit trading was to any great degree. So, so maybe you can just 
describe that for them, Anthony, and, and sort of explain to them where the differences are and how that difference felt to you? Well, to explain the pit in a nutshell, you have desks around a circular pit. And those desks around there are the brokers and they're all, and, and they're, it's all stadium. So when you look at the floors, the, especially in the S and P pit and pretty much all the pits in Chicago uh, for CME group, they're all stadium. So everything outside of the pit is levels of brokers and those are all phone brokers. So those are customers and they're on the phones and then they look at the clerk who's facing them and that clerk has their back to the pit and the broker behind them faces the pit who is on the top step. So the highest step in every pit is the broker. Then you have the stadium going down inside the pit where we all face each other and you have, you know, the S and P was three levels and then you including the floor, the, the floor. So you have three rows all the way around that goes to the floor and we all face each other. And when people hear like top step traders, well, those are traders. It's really, it's a real estate thing. They were there first. They were able to go there and stand next to those brokers. Now, why does that matter? Well, that matters because when the order comes into the pit and you have a broker directly behind you and he's like 50 and a half and you, you know, and, and you turn around and bid even. And if he has, if he just has a market order, He's going to go to the to the path of least resistance. That's the closest person to him. And he might be like, if you go even bit, he's going to go sell you 50. So you're going to get it first, uh, typically, right? I mean, that doesn't always the case, but you want to have that advantage to be able to hear him and then be able to turn around and, and, and bid or offer quickly. Uh, the further you are away from the order, um, then you would have to be really a, a, a bigger trader or, or, or somebody you know, like I said, with a really loud voice, maybe to where you can get that broker's attention. So that that's really how, in a nutshell, that's how it worked. And I guess, what was the other question you were saying is how, uh, comparing it to the pit or comparing yeah, the pit I mean, to the screen? I'm almost trying to sort of, um, I suppose, educate some of this audience who, who hear um, us older traders, us dinosaurs talking about these pit days. And they probably don't have a frame of reference unless they've watched trading places and that's probably it. And it was a very different world to the world. I mean, I, I, I was, I was a trader in a bank, so I would have, you know, sitting on our desks, we would have voice boxes that came direct from the pit and, you know, CME, CBOT, life, um, you know, the various pits around the world. And we would hear a crescendo of noise suddenly <laughs> come through these boxes and we would, I would give an order to a broker. It might be someone like uh, Mark here, you know, buy X number of um, Euro dollar futures or, or bond futures. That would go straight to you guys. From the, the guy there was sitting in an office, usually in London, who would then pass the order to the guy, to their broking representative, who would then pass the order down to you guys in the pit. And then that would be you guys there at the end of the chain executing that order. Yeah, it looked like it was it looked like it was chaos, but it was actually so well organized. It's it's, it's incredible because 
so what I did, how I really learned how to trade is I was a trade checker. Well, I was a, I was an ARB clerk as well in the Euros. I was also, you know, a runner. I d- did a lot of things. And where I really learned how to trade was checking trades. And, 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 and it was so for, I talked about how the, the, the guys on the outside would, that they were the brokers and then they would ARB an order in to the clerk. The clerk would give it to the broker. The broker would then trade with a trader or another broker. And what we did is they would have a card in their hand with a dupe on it. And we call it, you know, dupes. And after they wrote that, they would take that card and then they would put it either in their pocket or some of my traders would just, you know, I'd be standing right in front of them. They just throw it to us and we'd grab it, you know, rip the dupe off, put the dupe in our pocket to go check the trade, take the card, clean up the card, put it in our pocket. And then the runner would pick up that card and then go in and punch it. And then you would take the dupe and I'd be like, okay, look at, you know, VXD wall. I was one of the guys I work for. So it'd be like, you know, I sell you 30 at two half and I would go and check that trade within, you know, typically minutes. And right away we would have that trade checked. We'd know the exact quantities, make sure they were right. Opposing brokers, houses, everything and turned in. And it was just a fine tuned oil machine, man. I don't know what to say, except, you know, I, I think one of the biggest reasons why people ask me this all the time. Why do you think that so many pitch traders couldn't make it as computer traders? And I said, well, I think one of the biggest reasons was physicality of it. You, you know, you're in there, you're seeing everything. Everything comes with your eyes and your ears. And when you go to the, and, and you know, you're standing there, it's like you, you are an athlete, right? Um, and then you go to a screen where there's silence. And everything is right in front of you to buy and sell. And you don't have that physicality of it. So a lot of guys would either overtrade or undertrade. And they and that silence was very hard for them to deal with. And also just stand sitting there all day, going from standing in a pit. It's it's a massive change. And that's why I go back to like for me, people are like, Well, you know, how did you go from a pit trader to a computer trader. I don't consider myself a pit trader. I was a, not a good one. And I was only, you know, I stood in the pit for many years, but I was only trading in there for six to 12 months. I mean, maybe a little bit longer than that because sometimes I'd go in the pit during times it was slow or I couldn't get on the computer. But for the most part, I was not a successful pit trader. And that's why I say the best thing that happened to me was I took it on early. Because once you get used to something, let's face it, right? We're all creatures of habit, right, Mark? I mean, how many guys, I knew guys that were worth tens of millions of dollars. They'd be wearing New Balance gym shoes until they were falling off their feet because they didn't want to change yeah, shoes. Absolutely. Yeah, my word. There's some, some great stories. I mean, uh, but I remember one of the things that, that felt like, like a difficulty for those in the market coming from pit to screen and maybe it was a difficulty for those that were sort of living in the screen world is that when you were in a pit, you had a you had a defined open and a close for that that pit session. So, and of course, if you're on a screen, it gets carried on to the point that you get carried on, and the the, you know, the 24 hour market became then the market. So, uh, you know, that transition from sort of a fixed format world where actually you could sort of see flow and get some edge from what you're picking up from hand signals coming in and stuff like that. Um, but of course, as soon as those guys from physical pit trading, open outcry trading, there's this price discovery within this sort of collective uh, sort of defined environment on an exchange floor. 
as soon as they moved to the electronic world, they sort of lost their edge slightly because market depth became visible. You know, you can see market depth within uh, an electronic platform. You can only take an interpretation of what the depth might be if you're in a physical pit. Would you agree with that? I well, yeah. I mean, when you, I think when you're looking at the book, I think your mind starts playing tricks on you. Versus when they were in the pit, they were very focused on just the bid and offer at that moment. Now, maybe some of them, some guys would remember if a broker was working X uh, at a bid or an offer, and you'd hope it would still be there. Maybe if we started to move. I mean, I remember some guys that just had unbelievable memories. I mean, situations where you know a broker would be like even on fifty, another broker would be like twenty on fifty, half on a hundred, and then they start bidding them up. And all of a sudden that even on 50, maybe that was a limit order. And then all of a sudden, maybe an hour later we'd be breaking and we all of a sudden we'd go at a half at 20 and, and you'd see that broker get ready to pull his hands up and that local would think it would be going lower. And he'd be like, so he'd be like, sell you 50, you know, you know, so there was, that was the difference, you know? So they, they were always hyper-focused on what was happening now, right now. And I know that when you start looking at that book, you are, your mind can start playing tricks on you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. face it. Yeah, and people were trying to play tricks on you anyway. <laughs> you know, with stuff that was not actually there when it came to uh, being at the market yeah. either. You know, it just disappeared. Uh, totally aware of that stuff. We won't even talk about fast market. You know, I hope I hope some of our uh, some of our younger audience have got a sense of what the pit is. Um, and and I know that order. That order process sounds like to them, they're probably thinking, wow, how long did this take? But I, I, would, I would be on the phone to my, my broker and I'd say, oh, you know, buy me 500 decks. And he'd go with his hands, a signal, the order would go straight into the pit, come back and in less than probably half a second, he'll go your field. Oh, I mean, that's what I said. I was, it, people don't understand how efficient it was. Super efficient until you had a fast market. A fast market is when there's so much stuff going on that even the pit observers can't track what the bid and the offer is. And you could have several prices playing around the pit at the same time. And if you have a broker have thrown an order into that pit, it suddenly, the word efficiency didn't exist because you then had to wait quite a while to work out exactly what you've done. Um, fast market electronically, it's just, it's you know, it's, it just tolerates it within a certain uh, amount of sort of uh, um, the, the ability to, to, to show price on screen. Fast market in a physical pit, it's just, just a blur uh, and a dangerous blur. You're not quite sure what you've done. Um, and I think the exchange doesn't hold prices either, does it, Anthony, in, in fast markets? It steps away from that obligation to some extent. I don't remember the exact ruling on it, but I do remember, I mean, obviously I was a part of many fast markets in the S&P and, you know, the, the, the reporters, it would be the people that were putting the order, you know, the, uh, the last traded up there. And I don't know if there was, they would, re, they would have to report that it is a fast market. So there was some, for the people outside the pit were aware that some of the quotes might be coming a, a little bit later than normal. And, uh, but I could tell you this. So, standing in the S and P pit, being a clerk in there for a lot of years, the majority of the out trades 
came in slower markets, which is hard to imagine that. Because I think that, yeah, there would be a lot of mistakes probably during a fast market throughout the day, but they would be rectified and, and caught quickly. I felt like a lot of people stepped up their games versus in slower markets. A lot of times, I could tell you from a lot of my friends, the, they would be like, how did this outtrade happen to me? Nothing happened yesterday. And we'd come in and we'd be buy-buy or sell-sell or something like that. That would just mean that he thought he sold, but instead he actually bought. And you say, well, how could that happen? Well, a, a clerk that doesn't check the trade accurately and a local that's standing uh, they're looking at a broker and they, they may just miscommunicated. And a lot of times that happened during slow times. So uh, I just wanted to throw that out there because some of the biggest outrades I did witness did come during slow times where we come in and be like, wow, this guy's carrying this huge position on uh, things like that. So just want to change track slightly. Um, there's a couple of things which I want to move on to. One is um, an ebook you've written. I think a, a new one and you, you've written one previously. Um, but it, it might be a good lead in there to ask a couple of questions which have which have come from the the fintwit world. I, I put um I put a tweet out this afternoon um, asking if anyone's got uh, some questions for the legend that is Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you replied, no questions about uh, hair lotions or hair products. Those are secrets. Come on, Stephen. I'm not sharing that. That's the good stuff. I mean, I'm glad I can't see you now because (laughs) if you look at me and Mark, there's probably less hair there than there is on a newborn baby. Come on. on. Uh... We're not going there. We're not going to hair products. Yeah, it's bad enough. It's bad enough you're in Naples, Florida. (laughs) And you've got hair as well. (laughs) Let's let's Uh... not go there. We do have a couple of questions put to us, and uh, there's a great one from Steve B, who's at Lee Pickles 1101. And, um, you know, you, you might have an opinion on this as well, Mark. Um, it's everyone says, let your winners run. What is the psychology behind not being able to do that, i.e., taking profits too soon? And, and, you know, do you have any processes for overcoming that? Well, I trade intraday. And for me, I always have a target to where I want to cover my trade. Do I hold a full position to the target? Rarely. So how do I hold a winner to the target? For me, it's simply scaling. And that, that's just really the only way it, it's worked for me. I've tried a lot of different ways. I need to take some off. And once I get to a smaller position, I let that one run. That's the only way I could do it. It's, it's it's the reason why I believe that trading one contract is so difficult because trying to trade one contract and holding it all the way through to its potential destination, I feel is so difficult because you're in a full position, you're there and you're held by that one entry price and that one exit price. And when I started to learn how to trade multiple contracts, I actually started just getting better at execution. I say this all the time. I'm on the podcast, on on the radio show. Execution is everything to me because I am very rarely holding a full position to as far as I think it, it, it could go. And you have to have a strategy in which you're either trailing stops, you reasons for it, and, and you know, and, and that's to me how you hold on to winners. You have to have a format to do it. And for me, it's scaling. And I have a process for moving stops up 
And then at that point, I get out, but the market took me out. And I can't complain about it. I, I, there is no other formula that I have found that has worked for me to hold a winner longer. I wish there was a way for me to hold a full position from beginning to end. It, it just doesn't work that way for me. Yeah, I did similar things, Steve. We used to say uh, 80% out of 80%. So if you had an objective, say it's 10 ticks away, and you had a 10 lot, you'd take eight lots out at eight ticks and run 20% with a tight stop. It was sort of a scaled method, really, um, but it all depends on um, the dynamic of the uh, of the background as to why you've put on a trade, and whether you've got an outright trade on, whether you've got a spread trade on, and what sort of type of product is around the trade. But generally speaking, uh, we always used to say eighty percent out of eighty percent. We just want to pause this podcast to tell you about our powerful run-to-run trader performance coaching programs. The programs focus on helping traders and investment professionals to improve and strengthen the vital human performance aspects of trading and investing. The program works on developing the individual's inner game abilities, which is the toughest part to develop. Strong traders, strong investment professionals always have a strong inner game. To find out more, please visit alphamindblog.blogspot.com and go to the link at the top of the page or email info at alphaRcubed.com. That's the word alpha, the letter R, and the word cubed. Now back to the podcast. I mean, it's it's a fascinating question because, you know, I, I think if I asked a thousand people, you know, everyone would have a slightly, slightly different or nuanced answer and sometimes very different. Um, this is one of those, you know, it's one of those um, quotes or one of those rules that people talk about. But it can mean so much. It all depends on your style of trading, your method. You know, are you investing or are you trading, which is also part of it. Um, a lot of it to do is, one is what are your process and two, about managing your own anxiety. So there's two things going on there. There's there's a game you're playing, the system method, and there's managing your own anxiety. Uh, um, and for myself, when I was a trader, I, I did something very similar to, to you, Anthony. I used to scale in. So to me, to me, my own way of dealing with it was to always ask myself, how much am I going to risk on each trade? How much is my loss that I'm willing to start with? And that would set my size. And then I'd be looking at the relationship between the loss of my profit targets. Um, is there a good risk reward for me? What does that risk reward mean in terms of the momentum behind it? So, you know, if it's a contra trade, you have to have a very different um, structure to a, a pro trend trade, um, and 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 then I'd manage a trade as it went along, and uh, you know I'd use trailing stops. So sometimes it took me out. I'd sometimes readjust as the market unfolds, but other times I would pyramid in, increase my size, because trading with the trend had allowed me to do that. And where I was now in the market relative to where I started meant that I had a much, I was able to up my risk size. So it, 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 this, this is one of those things that you have to, you have to calibrate and you have to work with and, you know, you have to develop a, a manage, management structure around. But it, it, it's a great question. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree a lot of what you, both of you guys said I, and you just really have to have a process for it. I mean, there, I don't think that there is an exact formula for that or for anything for that matter. And the one thing that you, that you said, Stephen, dealing with 
your anxiety or psychology throughout that trade. That's why scaling works for me because once I am into a smaller position, I feel that I am I I can I can let that part of my position work. And the other part, really the minute I get in, because I'm a day trader and because of my style of trading, I'm in a little bit bigger and a shorter area. So therefore I'm gonna turn out of those as quick as I can to try and hold that smaller piece for a longer time. Now, not all the time do I scale out for a winner. So I think that that's also something to to understand is that a lot of times I'll get in a little bit big and then it'll go against me and then I'll take some of those off and I'll just be like, you know what? This is one I'm going to stay smaller and hold. So that works for me. (laughs) You know, I don't necessarily have to scale out on the winning side. Sometimes I'll just get smaller because I'm like, you know what? This is a bumpy road here. I am not feeling good about sitting here in a full position this whole time. I'm just not feeling it. There's a lot of things going on that are telling me, you know, you should be smaller here and I get smaller and I hold that trade. So, you know, you don't have to be scaling out for winners, I guess is something I wanted to mention. And you you were keeping your stops damn close as well and not being, uh, uh, I mean, I think uh, stop flexibility tends to be the one thing that I saw over time that tends to kill the trader where they, kind of kept on moving the stop further away uh, rather than get sticking to their first processes to identifying where the stop should be. Um, I think uh, that, that that rigidity of structure around process is really, really critical for those in, in trading. Uh, the only price that matters to me is the stop price. It's the only price because I trade according to that price, not where I'm getting out. I don't care if a, my strategy says, look, you want to be buying here I just go, okay, well, where is that? Where is it wrong? Okay, look at the conditions. I might buy under that entry price. I might buy above that entry price. I'm going to adjust my position sizes based upon how far away I am from my stop, period, the end. The reason why I get small sometimes is because of conditions, right? What is happening? So I, I will look around me and there might be reasons that I see push and pull. And I just don't want to sit through a bigger position even though it's within my risk parameter, I'm not going to move my stop. I just want to be smaller so I could hold that trade. Because I just, at that point, going back to what, what, what Stephen said, the anxiety of it. I mean, when you're in a position, I was saying this the other day, I said, I could be standing at my desk all day looking at charts or sitting in a chair in five hours, I'll blink and go by, right? But if I am sitting there and I'm just looking at the internet, all of a sudden I get stiff and you know you, you notice it a lot more. So uh, my goal is right. You know, so I, I, when I look at it, is I want to look at in those conditions. I don't want to be putting that much pressure on myself and my body. I'm very self aware of that and going. You know what? I'm not going to be comfortable with this. I need to just take it down. I could always get back in. Well, I'm not losing opportunity. I'm just for right now. This is this is the way I feel is the best way to manage this trade. Yeah, this this really emphasizes the idea of trading as a as a mental game. Um, you know, it's you know, if people ask ask me, you know, what book should I should I read, you know, to learn trading? I, you know, I'll point them towards a couple of the classic books, some books about methods, but I'll generally push them towards books which are about learning to manage fear and cope with fear and cope with anxiety and stress because I I think that's more the game than you know than learning how to how to read read charts um, I mean that that is a big part of it 
probably, probably <laughs> we are sponsored here by the Society of Technical Analysts, so I'm not going to sit down and say that's that's not the game. But it's there are so many elements that there's the outside part of the game, what I call the outer game, you know, which is what you do. You know, this is where you have to learn how to analyse, learn how to read price action, learn the fundamentals, you know, learn what you do and how you execute. But then there's the inner game, which is that bit where we're managing ourselves, the mental game, that the managing the anxiety. And when you're day trading, you're you're normally trading with a lot of leverage. So, you know, you, you have the potential to blow up in, in a huge size sitting there with you. It's it's you know, you've got your own private um private tool of self mass destruction. So can I can I ask something, Anthony? Can I it's Guess going back to this self-management thing that Steve was just alluding to there that is so important, this inner game. What made you suddenly pick up meditation as a method and when was that? Was Did, did you have some sort of revelation? Was how, how, Where did that come from? It was the heart attack because yeah. at that point in time, I was just – going back to what I had said a little bit earlier was work hard, play hard. Right. And I don't, I don't mean that I was partying hard. I think that that's, that's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is, is that I went from a stressful day trading, right? All these other problems going on in your life. You're always, there's always something, right? You're never away from everything. There's always something you're dealing with and then you're, you're trading. And then I go and I lift weights or I, you know, and I lift weights heavy and whatever, uh, you know, physical exercises, and that whole time I'd be very, const- I'd be constricted. And when I sat down in the hospital and the doctor snaps his gloves off and says to me, Anthony, what's going on with you? I'm like, what do you mean? He's, he says to me, he's like, you have really nothing wrong with you, but you had a heart attack. You know, physically, he's like, I, I can't put a stint in you. I can't do anything like that. But you had a heart attack. And, you know, there's no denying that. So he goes, I think you need to change your lifestyle. And I, at that moment, I'm looking at him going, do I need to, am I happy about this? I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Of course, I'm relieved that I'm not getting, you know, I'm not going to need surgery because of course, that's what you're thinking right away. You're in this room and, you know, and they went and did an angiogram on me and everything. And I'm going, oh, I can't, you know, I'm panicking. And I was what I was scared of was losing who I was. I've always fought. I, I wanted to be, I always, I didn't always want to be a trader, but once I got it in my blood, that's all I wanted. I was scared. I was losing it. That I was, I not going to be able to do it anymore because I went right back to trading that Monday, had a heart attack on a Friday, got out of the hospital on Sunday, was trading Monday morning, which is just completely insane. Uh, I look back at this mistake I made just because I wanted to see how I would react back in the game. And I felt fine. But as time went by, I continued to get chest pains and things like that. And I started to realize that, look it, <laughs> you'd think I would be smart enough to know that right after the heart attack, I would need to learn this. But it took me some time. I need to learn how to balance my life. I need to learn how to just basically relax. And meditation, what it allowed me to do just through breathing, I actually started feeling better. I felt mentally stronger. I just felt... It's so much more in control of everything. And I just became addicted to that. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm somebody, well, once I find something that works, I just will continue to do it. 
So that's why meditation became part of my life. And I, and I attest this to one of my friends who got me to do it. And he actually did it with me over a phone call. And he's, he, he's like, listen, we're going to meditate for five minutes. I mean, here's talk about a good friend. He gets on the phone with me and I closed the door in my bedroom and I, and I, and I was sitting, I remember sitting right on the edge of my bed and I did five minutes and I walked away going, I can't believe this, but I actually feel pretty good. So I don't meditate for a long period of time, but I meditate for short meditations and it, it works for me. Incredible. That's a, you know, such an example, right? Such an example. You're almost controlling your physical by managing your mental. 100%. I, I don't think that people attest the, that the, the mental side of things enough to the physical. I mean, I'll give you an example for me just this year. I think that this is beginning. <laughs> the beginning of this year has been pretty tough. I mean, looking around, you know, coming off the holidays, just a few things on my mind. And I felt myself getting constricted again. And I go into the gym and I'm doing incline press. I pick up a dumbbell and I go to lean back on there and I go to push it. And it wasn't even that heavy of weight. But when I went to push up, all of a sudden I felt a kink in the back part of my shoulder near my neck. And I'm going, what is this? I warmed up properly everything. I was so tight, not meditating. I go into the gym. I physically get hurt because I felt the pressure. That once again, I created, <laughs> you know, and I didn't do enough. I wasn't doing enough. Got a little lazier after the holidays, around the holidays, coming off vacation, having a couple of drinks, you know, next thing you know, you're not doing your meditation and I get physically injured. I wasn't able to work out for two weeks or play golf. Sorry about that, everybody. It's nice down here. It's a great time to play golf, but you know what I'm thinking to myself? It's all because I didn't do my, my, I really go back to the reason I got hurt. I really do believe this was because I wasn't doing enough with meditation. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's quite interesting, some of the work I've, I've, I've done and created some surprises. And, um, I mean, I, I bring, you know, sort of mind fitness or, you know, meditation aligned to the corporate world, into the workplace and, and the trading place, as it were. Uh, and what surprises me, the number of stories where people have had better physical repair by adopting these very simple techniques around the breath and some degree of visualization that I teach. One particular guy, he had this motorcycle accident. I mean, it was almost a paraplegic as a result of it. And um, he was a fit guy before, you know, Iron Man type sort of character. And um, he then went through this program of, um, you know, repair with, uh, uh, with obviously the, the doctor guidance and the physiotherapy guidance. And he came on one of my sessions and, and learned some of these tools. And about um, a month after, uh, you know, we, we'd shared that experience, um, he sent me an email. Uh, and the email said that he'd actually just done with his uh, um, physio's guidance a, a, a mini sort of Ironman thing, which was his first exercise after this, this you know, six months of just being – um, you know, brought back to some degree of normality. And so he went on this sort of, this short form, um, you know, exercise program in competition with others. And he, he, he had an expectation of doing it in around about an hour and a half. But he did it in an hour. And he said, the reason why I did it in the hour was that the technique you taught me gave me so much self-belief and sort of positive mindset that the barriers that, I kind of thought were there, weren't there. They were mental barriers, not physical barriers. 
Um, his physio couldn't believe it. His family couldn't believe it. But it was down to the fact that he was using the benefit of, of, of mental management, as it were, of, I guess, mindset enhancement in combination with physical effort, despite what he'd been through, he was still able to perform um, beyond belief. Um, and there's been many others where, you know, pe people sense that, that they come in tight to session, but they leave with this, this, this lightness because they've kind of just unwound these difficult muscle groups that have been causing them pain. And like you say, if you don't manage that stuff prior to physical training, and you walk into physical training with stress, and of course there's a lot of people that are in the city of London that, uh, that, that maybe head to the gym after moments of stress, and I guess the caution is, well, you, you, you wouldn't be badly off by doing some meditation before you start actually doing the exercise. Because the last, you know, the, the point in exercise where you don't want to be really getting aggressive is actually when you're really, really tight through stress. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, so I learned big lessons from those programs. But actually, you start to realize that this stuff, this, this, this management of the physical body gets enhanced by managing the mind. The, the, the management of the mind is, um, I think people are becoming more aware of it, but we, we've just sort of, we're talking about the tip of the iceberg at the moment. There, there was a, it's interesting, there was a great article which um, was on the BBC website today, which is talking about how rugby clubs here in the UK are starting to employ mindfulness coaches and using meditation. And, you know, you've, you've kind of gone from something which is, you know, quite possibly the most macho sport in the world to people doing something which they, they kind of think is almost the least macho thing you can do. Um, but people are realizing, you know, the, the, the special forces practice all these mindfulness. They have mindfulness coaches. They do meditation to make sure that they are at their peak, not just of physical fitness, but mental fitness when they're facing these incredible challenges. And I know, and, you know, we've come across and we've talked about it, that there are so many people in the trading world doing this sort of stuff. Um, a lot of guys I coach also have a therapist because they're trying to balance, they're trying to remain as balanced as possible. You know, some of these guys are guys at top hedge funds where they're, you know, they've got portfolios of hundreds of millions of dollars that they're trading and there's huge pressure on them. Uh, and the swings in their P&L are ridiculous. Um, so obviously try, trying to balance all this stuff is, you know, and, and, it, and we had, um, we had a, we, one, one of our best podcasts today was a few weeks ago with a guy called Simon Garcia, who was a, a trader, an investment banker, actually had um, a mental breakdown on the trading floor. Um, and, and he couldn't walk into the office and he's now a therapist. And it's, it, it the whole thing is linked. Mind, body, soul, performance, risk management, dealing with anxiety. There's one great big line that goes through the whole thing. If you are a trader and you want longevity in this business, I don't care how much you look at the charts or know the fundamentals, without spending time on working on your mind, <laughs> that muscle that you, you talked about it, Stephen, and, and when you and I in our interview, it's a muscle. If yeah. you don't spend time working on that, 
it doesn't matter how much money you make is at some point. I mean, I look at, at myself, you think that when you finally start to do well and you've put all this time in, well, now it's just different things you have to deal with. It's always something. And I didn't put that time in to do that. And it, and it caused me physical. It caused me physically <laughs> with the heart attack. I gave back a lot of money that I had made because I wasn't prepared when I got there. And if I would have been meditating during those times, I would have been a lot smarter about the decisions I made and, you know, being just self-aware of what was happening to me. And, and that's why it's like some of these younger traders or newer traders, they don't feel it yet. But over time, the amount of pressure, it's chipping away at you. And if you're not taking care of yourself along that, that path, that journey, then at some point it does catch up to you. It shows up in your P&L. It shows up in your physical health. Yes. It shows up in the relationships you have with other yep. people, people that really matter to you. you know, it shows up everywhere. Absolutely. It's, you know, it, it's great what you said. I'm conscious of the time and, um, you know, it's, I'd love to carry on on this line, but, you know, another thing related to this is you've written a couple of ebooks, um, including a new one. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about those. Well, the ebook I recently wrote was just Anthony's instincts. And I remember at the beginning of my career, I was searching for trading rules, not strategy rules, trading rules. And I had all these rules from all of the greatest traders out there on trading cards. And I would sit down on my machine, trade, and I would at at the end of the day look and say, Oh, I broke this rule, or I, you know, oh, I forgot about this one. And I and I started thinking, this is not the way to go about this. <laughs> right? Markets move fast. You need to have rules for your trading. Rules for your strategy, I should say. Instincts for your trading. And I started to just narrow it down to the things that I felt I needed to just have as instincts while I was trading. You know, so I wrote an ebook on those instincts because I don't believe if you're a futures trader, a day trader, and you're sitting there and you have these trading rules, you need to have strategy rules, like I just mentioned, but these trading rules. It's it's just another thing that your mind is going to be you know looking at when you should be looking at the market. So I just started to develop instincts and I talk about exactly what those instincts are and they're easy things. You, you want to sit down and you want to going back to the mental side of things, right? You, you want to be able to sit down, be comfortable with who you are. You want to be confident in your decision making and I don't want to be looking at pieces of paper for th for rules I need to be following. I need to have instincts in my trading. And so that's what I wrote the ebook on. Uh, I, I always, I'm somebody who has, when I, when, it, when I read, I have a very short attention span. So I, don't, I haven't written a book. I'm actually I am writing a book kind of about my journey as a trader. That's a little bit different. This is really something very specific. It's short and traders can go in there and they could just read about instincts that I developed in that, you know, maybe it's, maybe it helps them. You know, I, I think, one thing I always want to stress is something I put out there. It doesn't mean that it's going to be right for you, but I, I want to put something out there for traders to understand that you don't need to have all these rules. I think 
there's just too much maybe going on in a lot of people's minds. There's so much out there with social media. I see some people put out like these trading rules and there's like 24 trading rules. If if you can't recite every one of those trading rules, what good are they? I, I don't get it. You know, it just is, it's one of those things where I've been down that path. It doesn't work. Yeah. For your strategy, you put them in there. You know, you're not, this is what's got to be, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit more black and white, but when you're trading, to me, it's instincts. That's what I wrote an ebook on. Hopefully you guys will check it out uh, and enjoy it. I'm always open to hear comments about it as well. And thank you for mentioning it, Stephen and Mark. Thank you guys. Where, where, where can people get hold of that? You can go to futuresradioshow.com slash ebook. Uh, and, and they can just go to my website, futuresradioshow.com or anthonycredelli.com. And both of them have it. Right. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, just, just very quickly want to comment on that point you make about rules and and you know writing down a whole list you know you 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 really want to you know a few time through time is you know if you can get some rules you want them to become habitual and that's almost where the mindfulness comes in you know that ability to to bring these so that they just become part of the way your mind is working yes they're not at the start Exactly. I mean, that's really what I did is I took the rules that I felt that were something that could become instinctual to me. And I just really focused on those. This way, when I sat down, it was really just a a confidence thing for me. I just didn't want too many things going on (laughs) in my head, which there's always a lot of things because, you know, we're all doing all this work. We're all working so hard at this business. I just really tried to to simplify it. And, and that's why I wrote these instincts down probably, I think it was my, right around my third year. So it was 18 years ago I wrote these and I've done a lot of webinars on them. And, and people, a lot of times after I would give them, they would want the, you know, the PowerPoint. So I just decided to put it in an ebook and make it short for everybody to go in there, read it, and hopefully they take away something from it. And, and one, one thing I also want to say is, I think that so many people overwhelm themselves with change. You know, they, they try to do so many things. I said this a while ago on Twitter. Everybody tries to move the dial. Not everybody, but a lot of people from like one to 10, they try to just implement all these things. Maybe you take a little something and, and start to implement it in your trading. I was one of these people who once I found something or some things that I liked, I tried to implement it all at once and it would just always overwhelm me. When I started to just put a little bit in, you eventually start developing your own your own strategy, your own style of trading, and it becomes more personalized as opposed to bombarding yourself with all these things at once. You got time. <laughs> Take mm. your time. Yeah, yeah. Any, any thoughts on that, Mark? Well, listen, I think this, this word instinct is pretty significant to access your instinct. So you need to access your awareness of yourself. And the awareness of um, what you're interacting with around you. So extending your awareness in real time to the challenges that are coming at you. Uh, And don't get stuck in this sort of lagged world of dwelling on things or trying to pre-trade the day, things that we've discussed in previous podcasts. But uh, Anthony, I think we're we're really grateful for what you've shared today. Um, Great insight for those uh, uh, looking to access the market, the Futures Radio Show. You know, a great source of wisdom, I'm sure, for those that want to plug into that. And of course, the ebook as a uh, as as part of that sort of evolving story of your offer to the market, as it were. I think it's, it, you, you've shown some 
real valuable guidance uh, today. And I, I think having having that uh, that moment, that difficult moment around the heart attack and how that opened up a new journey for you and how you then managed yourself, I think is also uh, a very important story for those that are young and approaching the market that actually put in this program of self-management in early. It's just absolutely vital. So Anthony, we're just so grateful. Thank you. Thank you guys, Stephen and Mark. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate you guys inviting me uh, onto your great podcast. Uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you once again to the Society of Technical Analysts, whom this show is produced in association with. You can find out more about the STA and their outstanding home study diploma courses and lecture-based education and diploma programs at sta-uk.org. Thank you for listening to this week's show. Once again, myself and Mark would be delighted if you can go to iTunes and rate and review the show. If you are interested in finding more about our powerful one-to-one trader performance coaching programs, please visit our blog at alphamindblog.blogspot.com and click on the link at the top of the page or email info at alphacubed.com. That's the word alpha, the letter R, and the word cubed.com to request information. You can also follow us on social media. My Twitter handle is at AlphaMind101, and Mark's is at AlphaMind102. Myself, Stephen Goldstein, and Mark Randall are happy to connect with you on LinkedIn, and we have a thriving LinkedIn group called the AlphaMind Group. And with that, it just leaves us to say thank you very much, and do tune in next week for our fantastic episode with the infamous rogue trader, Nick Leeson. Thank you very much.